and we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, now is my favorite time of the show again. Get to bring in somebody else that's hopefully smarter and more knowledgeable than I am. And in this case, I think think we're spot on there. Uh, We are joined today by our global macro analyst, the guy that's helping us keep the ship in the middle of the buoys, uh, Mr. Chase Taylor, joining us again. Chase, great to have you back on the show, pal. Yeah, great to be back, and I don't know if I'm smarter than you, but I, you had Mike Green on here recently. He's, I think he's smarter than both of us combined, so we'll, we'll just try to keep up with Mike. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're not smarter than me, pal, then we we need to renegotiate that uh, <laughs> that that employment contract. That's that's my that's my strategy. People are like, "What makes you guys? What what makes Bulwark different?" And I'm like, "I've got a very large universe of people to pick from. They're people that are smarter than me." So, right, it's, 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 like, uh, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, pal. Um, anyway, a couple of things I want to hit on. Now, I know um, I, t- I was planning on doing a, uh, a segment on crypto, and I was planning on doing a segment on commercial real estate. I think commercial real estate is, is more up your alley. I know that you hey, – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you kind of view crypto like I do – which is you keep an eye on it, but you might trade it when things look good, but it's it's certainly not a core holding of anything you're doing, correct? Yeah, that's kind of the way I see it. Like, I'm happy to trade it. To me, it's a trading sardine. There there are times where it's great to, to trade it. Uh, it responds to technical analysis really well, usually. Yeah, so, like, from that standpoint, like, it's fine. But And I did a really deep dive on it, you know, years ago, 2016 or something. I, was, I started buying under $1,000 on Bitcoin. I did a really deep dive on it. I really wanted to believe in it. And I just kind of kept coming back to the same point. I think a lot of other people did where like, I really couldn't understand the use case. People would like, explain it. And I'm like, yeah, but like, it doesn't, don't we already have like 10 things that do that? Like I, I could never wrap my head around the use case personally. And I still can't other than, you know, it's something that's, well, at least with Bitcoin, it's something that's kind of scarce. So maybe it has some value, but most of the rest of the crypto universe is, is clearly just kind of worthless and fraudulent. And yeah, I, I don't have big takes on on, on crypto. I'm not a I'm not a, you know, a an evangelist by any stretch, and a, but I'm also not a, a a giant hater. You know, I've I've been long at it at times, and it's made me money, so I I don't hate it. But obviously, what's been going on lately is is really unfortunate, but not particularly surprising. I that's the part, and that that to me is the part of it that I just don't understand. I understand inexperienced investors getting involved. I cannot understand these more experienced investors getting involved. It, it was just a sector growing up in the micro cap natural resource sector like I did. Um, I, I just looked at these things right out of the gate and went, this looks a lot like a pump and dump. You know what I mean? Just hundred uh, percent. It, 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 that's what it looked like to me. It looked like the scuzziest parts of the natural resource micro cap sector. And like the actors look similar. The stories sounded similar. And I just went, yuck. And you could just see it. I mean, especially when they started throwing off native coins, I just went, uh, wait a second. These things have no value whatsoever. And one of the other problems I've had with the chase is if Bitcoin, right? If you listen to people tell you why Bitcoin is so good, I, I agree with everything they're saying. I just look at them and say, guys, there's no IP. So if you want to make a utility argument with me with Bitcoin, why should I pay 16000 for it? I'll go out there and program my own and pay 2 bucks for it. Right? I mean, if, if the utility of the coin is why we buy it and there's no IP, then why wouldn't we just copy it? And they go, well, that's not the only reason you buy it. 
right? It's not just yeah. the utility. It's the, it's the, it's a network effect. And I go, okay, so we're paying the money for the network effect. Well, no, no. Well, it's for the utility, the network. It's just the circular argument, right? Um, I love the ethos behind it. I think it's got some great use case. Anyway, I, I did a deep dive on it though. Cause I was on a, on a, on a radio show that I, I on another guy's radio show once a week, I'm like the, believe it or not, I'm the finance expert he brings on. So I always give the audience a caveat here. Uh, <laughs> but um, I did a deep dive on it on his behalf because he wanted me to explain to his, his, uh, his folks, you know, what, what was happening. And the thing I will tell you guys is that just, just take my word on this. If you have a substantial amount of money in crypto, hey, look, I could be wrong. I'm just telling you, get out. Okay, that this Bitfinex exchange, I don't think that the thing's going to be solvent for another 60 days. I think that it is attached to, somewhat illegally, an entity called Tether. And the way I've described Tether is Tether is sort of like chips in a, in a casino, right? Like you, you swap in your, your money for Tether and then you use Tether to trade coins and all that kind of stuff. Um, Tether is a complete fraud. We dug into it. I have no problem saying that on the radio. Uh, if people want to sue me for that, go ahead. Um, I mean, guys, it is a Ponzi scheme. It is a fraud. Am I saying that mean, makes Bitcoin worthless? No, but Tether is probably the biggest liquidity provider in the entire crypto space. Bitfinex is one of the other biggest exchanges. might be the biggest left now. Or I think Coinbase is probably bigger. But um, it, it, the, the blatant fraud, the guy that, did you know this CZ, the guy that runs Bitfinex, won't even tell anybody where it's located? Like, so they, he won't, he, they, nobody knows where their headquarters are because he refuses to tell. Right. It, and then sure there's somewhere, somewhere similar to the Bahamas. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. They're not in the Bahamas. They're in the Virgin Islands. Um, right. So no, it's just, I look, it, there's been pain felt by everybody else. You've gotten your warnings, guys get out. Okay. That these other exchanges are going to collapse for the exact same reasons. I think the entire thing is just rife with fraud and just go look. There's a there's a YouTube video out there that really tells the story pretty well. It's only about 30 minutes long. Um, it's like the truth about Tether or something like Anyway, um, it's a great uh, – you know what? I'll post the video on my Twitter if you want to get it. Um, it's at KYR Radio so you guys can read it. But I just wanted to get that. I wanted to get that warning out there. Okay, so the anyway. Onion, the Onion kind of nailed this. They had, the, the Onion had a nice little headline that said, a uh, man that lost everything in, in crypto wished another thousand people would have warned him. <laughs> I, yeah, the, these, it, it's, and I, you know, I, I had family members that I tried to warn, you know how it is, man. And it's one of the, one of the worst things that can happen. I, I think it's, it's one of the things I think is fascinating about investing. It's kind of a microcosm of life. The worst thing you can possibly do as a coach or as a teacher or as a parent is to reward bad behavior. And when people are out there speculating and levering up and taking these ridiculous bets, the worst thing that could have happened to them is watch those investments go up because now they think that they were correct, right? Um, and I think that's kind of what's going on in the crypto space and people keep going back to the well. And unfortunately, man, I just think they're going to keep coming up with, uh, you know, I just think they're going to keep coming up with lashes. I mean, it's just, uh, especially with rates going up, liquidity getting sucked out of the market. That's kind of what I look at crypto now more, Chase, is kind of a sentiment and liquidity uh, uh, indicator, if you will. And, um, you know, when you see what the Fed's doing, it's just really hard for me to see those those things having any legs. So anyway, let's move on from that. We'll get into the commercial real estate side of it. Um, but uh, 
wanted to talk about the commercial real estate side of it and then get into what your thoughts are looking out at the macro economy and getting to some of the finer points. Um, but the, the commercial real estate situation, specifically commercial office space, you know, I've been telling clients that what you see, or excuse me, listeners, what you see happening right now in residential real estate with just this stall speed, what you start see, what you're seeing happening to used cars, prices and demand for new and used automobiles, right? These, the interest rates, now it's going to hit certain sectors of the economy harder than others, right? But it's going to impact every phase of the economy. And I think the commercial office space is a perfect example of some of the pain that we're up against and some of the potential issues we're facing. Um, you and I both know, and if, and you can jump in here at any moment and fill it in. I'm, I'm hardly a commercial office space expert, but typically commercial real estate loans are much shorter duration than home loans, usually five to 10 years, right? Um, there have been some exorbitant prices paid for real estate of all kind in the past five years, uh, office, record prices on certain office space in certain areas. Um, you know, it's, it got fairly frothy, especially the office commercial office space and what's happening. And it's already beginning to happen. Um, a prominent real, uh, uh, and very well run too. very, very great history. Great fund just gave back a property, a, a office building in Washington, DC because their loan came due. And if they went to roll it into another loan, they were going to be immediately cash flowing, you know, tens, negative cash flow, tens of millions of dollars on the interest rate adjustment alone. Right. And so rather than do that, they just gave it back to the bank. And yeah. what I don't think people understand, Chase, is that that's not emblematic of a single transaction. Typically, whoever loaned them that money to purchase the property took that loan and levered that up with some other lender. Right. And then that lender took that loan and levered that up with some other lender. Right. You've got these stacks. And, and what happens when these credits starts tipping over is it creates sort of a domino effect that's similar to 2008. Right. And I'm not saying we're looking at a 2008 scenario, but if we're sitting back looking specifically at the commercial office space sector of the economy, which is a really big part of it, guys. Um, do, do, does it look like as much of a of a house of pain to you as it does to me. Yeah, absolutely. I th I, th I think it, it's one of those it's one of those areas of the economy that has intense leverage to to interest rates. So even small moves in interest rates have have a really negative impact. Um, so even even if you know it wasn't for COVID or the work from home trend, if none of that had happened, or if you know we weren't about to go into a recession, just the interest rates would would cause some some pain in, in office real estate. But when you throw in the fact that so many people have begun work from home and that, you know, at least a lot of businesses are moving to a, a hybrid model that alone means they need less floor space. Um, when, when you see that across the economy, people have to downsize to begin with. I think there's going to be a lot of pain. Um, I do think it'll be an opportunity for people that have the ability to buy distressed uh, office space and turn it into something else, especially, you know, a mixed use or apartments or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. It, it's, you're going to have a lot of those people that say it's going to cost me how much? Uh, no, thank you. Um, and I, I do, I, so I just think you're going to have a supply and demand, just really ugly mismatch where demand is falling because of the work from home aspect of this. And it's going to obviously 
it fall worse whenever we go into a recession and and on the flip side because of the uh you know more or less tripling of of interest rates uh within a year you're going to have a lot of people walking away and handing handing over the keys um because because of the the rate side of it so that's going to be a, a just massive jump in supply right when demand's falling off um which <laughs> economics is a very bad mix for for the prices of something yeah, and the and the other thing that concerns me, something we've been talking about on the show quite a bit, that I really don't hear anybody talk. I mean, people like you and I have been talking about it, but it hasn't even fettered out into the mainstream at all. I don't hear anybody discussing it. It's everybody is always a focus. Everybody is always focused on the issue, right? So everybody's intensely aware of rates, and the prevailing attitude seems to be, well, it's not good while rates are down or up, but you know, rates are going to go down. Things are okay. Um, I, I suppose you might be able to say that over the long run. But when I look at this whole scenario, again, having done this for a while, as of you, it's not the bullet you see, right? It's the bullet you don't see. It's the second and third order impacts. It's the lending institutions. And I'm not saying big ones, but there will be small lending institutions because of what's going on right now that go out of business. There are going to be big loan write-offs. There are going to be, there's going to be messes. There are always chains and complications behind the scenes, right? That, that tie these things together. And when these things start tipping, you know, if it's just one or a few here or there, if they're geographically, you know, uh, 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 confined or something, it's not a big deal. But when you're talking about interest rates, there isn't a corporate, you know, there, there isn't a commercial real estate market in the United States that is not going to be substantively impacted by these rate moves. That in and of itself is not really what scares me, Chase. It's what are the knock-on impacts? So I, I realize this kind of takes us, we've got we've to speculate a little bit here. But when you look at this situation, what do you see as the potential for some level of contagion? And what, where do you, um, um, you know, wh- wh- where do you see those second and third order effects possibly playing out? What do you, what do you think could be some, what, 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 what could some of the bullets we don't see be? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this one is fairly simple in that it, you know, the, the first order effect is going to be, uh, they're going to, you're going to have problems for the lenders, which I, I think, you know, people immediately think of banks, but there, there are a lot of private lenders and, and shadow banks, uh, that you know, less regulated institutions that provide a lot of money for this, so they're going to have problems. Some of them are going to go under, but also you, you think about you know, other things like in, in downtown areas that uh, we may take for granted that are, are going to have problems. Whether that's just the you know one of, one of the things that's still really hot in the economy is, is just kind of your basic uh, retail, like. Uh, whether it be restaurants or you know the Starbucks of the world, things like that, like all all the sales for things like that are, are doing well. So anything that's clustered around offices, or that's just that's had a great bounce back, but that gets more and more difficult as you have more and more office buildings kind of showing up dormant. Um, it, and a lot of things in the economy have just kind of V-shaped once uh, we we came out of the you know the depths of COVID, but Something that hasn't is is office real estate. The occupancy rate for uh, before the pandemic was up near ninety four percent, and now it's at eighty nine, and it and it has actually gone down in twenty twenty two. So almost everything in the economy is ripping higher in twenty twenty two, and then you have the the vacancy rate for for 
uh, office is just kind of getting worse and worse. Uh, it, it's like a very notable di- uh, diversion, or uh, you know, from from everything else. So, I think a little bit of everything that has exposure to offices can can have some significant impacts. Um, and this is that's the kind of stuff that really has washes back on growth. The next thing you know, everyone's looking around, and you have big chunks of the economy kind of freezing up, and you know, we'll all get the well. Who could have known that was going to happen um, <laughs> out of the authorities? But I, to me, and and this is you know one of many areas where just the simple interest rate picture changes everything. Um, and like you say, I mean, a lot of this is will end up in spots where like, oh wow, I didn't really think about that because um, that's how it always works. But um, but some of them are you know are as obvious as the the coffee shop on the corner or. Uh, the the people that service the buildings, it's just like everything. It's a big domino effect. A lot, a lot of people's uh, well being is tied to a lot of people being in offices. Yeah, I, you, you had a comment there that I chuckled at. Who could have seen it coming? It, there, there's, when I look at this, commercial real estate is one part of it, especially commercial office space. But when I look at the landscape overall right now you know, including market action, including, you know, all the different things that you guys like you and I are watching. I, I cannot help to, but to be reminded of the summer of 2008. And then also the last 10 years on my tirade in bonds. Um, <laughs> there's been anybody out there bad talking bonds as much as I have been. Um, but you're seeing it now, right? One of the things we joked about over the last 10 years is we know that it was the right time to start buying bonds. It's about it, right around the time that other financial advisors are scaling back client exposures to bonds. And we see plenty of articles going around the internet talking about the breakdown of the 60-40. Well, sure as heck, we started buying treasuries in pretty good pretty good numbers about a month ago. And you've seen all that right now everybody who could have seen this coming it's been the worst year and you're sitting there scratching your head going what did you think was going to happen the minute inflation showed up you're going to sit there and make less than the inflation on your bonds waiting to get kicked in the teeth that's how it's played out the like i said the other one it reminds me of is 2008 um i remember really questioning my own religion at times over the summer of 2008 going why is this market acting as if there's nothing wrong and then all of a sudden there was this come to Jesus moment. Um, I'm not saying that we're sitting on a great financial crisis type scenario. What I'm saying is that when you get to these, and, and it usually surrounds things that have done really well, right? Meaning there was that, that, that feeling of invincibility around real estate in 2007. Going into this year, that feeling of invincibility around tech companies and crypto and all that kind of stuff, right? It, that attitude of just completely ignoring risks is usually surrounding something that has done really well for an extended period of time. Um, I look at that stuff and I just think that this, again, I feel like it's a similar setup chase in the form of, I just don't think people are taking these rate increases seriously enough All you hear them talk about is pivot versus non-pivot. Nobody sits there and says, hey, guys, whether they go up another 75 basis points or down another 50, have you stopped to think about what interest rates at these levels or close to these levels, what the economic impact will be? Hey, have you noticed that? I I don't hear anybody (laughs) talking. 
Governor Waller and and Bullard have both just in the last week kind of talked about like we're we're barely even restrictive right now. And I'm just like, what are you, what are you talking about? Go, go look at any of the long leading in, indicators, and and whether it be the yield curve at levels that are lower than any time in my life, and I'm turning 40 next year. Um, it, I, we you know we're, we're sitting here talking about commercial real estate. That's a 20 trillion dollar market, and that's a 20 trillion dollar market that has, got used to uh, zero interest rates. So like that that has unbelievable consequences uh, and I, I know people think well yeah but balance sheets were, were good going into this but well that's great but it takes a year for that to all of a sudden go away which is exactly what we're seeing um, by the middle of next year every, all the excess savings and excess cash on the balance sheets for, for corporates is gone and then what do you I mean what are you left with you, you know you'll, you'll have all these servicing costs and 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 you're not going to have the cash flows to do anything about it. So it, it's funny things like uh, around turns is like is like when no one really can see them coming. So everyone will say something like, uh, "Well, delinquency levels are really low," but then, well, of course they are. Like, but but they're starting to go up just because they're at a low level. But you know the the rate of change has like violently shifted, and I mean that those trends have to start somewhere. So everyone is happy to ignore new trends because they're still at you know, good levels, but that's, that's how every, you know, trend change happens. It has to start somewhere. Um, th- yeah, this is, I've been on a pretty much a crusade for the last few months, um, that the fed was, uh, going to over tighten and, and probably dramatically. And, and I, I still think that, and I think it's going to be really bad, especially because they're, they're making it clear that they're going, they're not going to back down until they've done significant damage. And I, I think going back to Mike Green, I, I think his 1945 analog it, that he uh, expressed on the show, I, I think that's that is kind of a perfect analog. And I, I think as much as I really don't like historical analogs, I, I think that one in this case makes a lot of sense. And I think we're going to kind of see it play out similarly. But I don't think the Fed is going to uh, – I don't think they're going to cut rates until they've done a significant amount of damage. As long as it takes for all of the – current data to catch up to all the damage they've done the, the same thing will happen in reverse like you can cut back to zero but you've done so much damage that it's in the pipeline for 18 months so you might you might we might have a situation where i don't know late next year the fed realizes like oh well inflation's under four percent under three percent like we better you know and, and unemployment has spiked to, to five or six percent like we better we better go back the other other direction well by then you've probably baked in another you know, nine months of job losses. So right. they right. they operate a, a massive super tanker, and they seem to think they're driving a jet ski, and I just don't understand it. Yeah, it's it is it is bizarre. That's what I was saying earlier on the show. Is that again, just because it's done this in the past doesn't mean it will do it again. But if you look at recessions in the past, the market typically doesn't bottom until six minutes after the Fed starts cutting. Right? right. Because like you just said, they start a fire and you can't just flick a switch and turn the fire off. You know, certain things are set in motion. I was listening to a conversation exactly. with a multi-billionaire real estate investor that is heavily invested in office space. And he was saying that, you know, look, we've battened down the hatches. We're go- I'm going to be fine personally. But as these loans come due, we're just going to give them back to the bank. 
And he said, when we were, when we were financial planning and we were, we were, you know, building the strategy to buy this building, nobody factored. And he goes, why would we? Nobody factored six to 8% lending rates. Right. And it just turns the economics of that property completely upside down. So it's not a matter if they can hold on. A lot of these guys are just going to go, hey, take the keys. There you go. Have it back. Exactly. Tenants are going to walk away. And then that means the, the owners of the buildings are going to walk away. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's going to happen in size. And, and, and office real estate, that's a three, over a $3 trillion market. It's, it's not like a, it's not something small. This isn't, this isn't a $20 billion piece of the economy. You know, it's, it's over $3 trillion. Well, yeah, but okay. So, so, so the, the commercial office space specifically in the commercial real estate sector in general is about to face some serious headwinds. The U.S., you know, the, the, the uh, traditional um, residential real estate market is in a complete deep freeze, right? But I don't know that that necessarily tips us into recession. <laughs> can you, can you, I'm, I'm speaking in jest here, Chase, but help me wrap my head around this. Is it possible looking at the headwinds? If let, let's say we just kind of take everything else and set it aside with what's going on in residential real estate and what's going, what's, what is beginning to happen in commercial real estate, specifically commercial office space. Those two things alone typically would be plenty to tip us into recession, wouldn't they? Uh, yes, it would, it would take something very significant growth-wise or productivity-wise outside of those areas to save you from having a recession. Because there's just – it's like roughly you know 20% of the economy, something like that, when you add that stuff up. And it, you can't really freeze off a fifth of the economy and, and, and then have the rest make up for that. Yeah, I, it's, I just, uh, so, so you were asking about like kind of the knock on effects earlier and something else just came to mind. Um, and, and in fact, it has a, a bit of a Seattle, uh, note connotation because I was just reading in the Seattle times this last week about how the city has had to dramatically scale back their budget. Um, and what I don't think a lot of people realize is the way they collect money. A lot of their money cities is it's actually on the transactions on uh, really expensive real estate. So not, not necessarily like a, you know, like a monthly or annual thing that they're just kind of collecting, but it's no kidding on the transactions. So when you freeze up transactions, that alone costs cities a, a lot of money. Obviously, the property tax revenues are significant as well, but I, I cities and, and states are doing great right now financially, and that's that's something that, again, one of, one of the people at the Fed mentioned this last week and was like, well, of course they are right now, but that's going to change dramatically. You're going to see cities and states all of a sudden have huge problems because their their tax base from from property taxes on on these office towers is going to uh it's going to plummet the the amount of transactions is going to plummet so i mean not to mention you know the jobs and the capital gains and all that kind of stuff too but i i think something to, to keep an eye on is to start watching for headlines for cities having to dramatically scale and, and states scale back budgets cut jobs, cut projects. And that has a, that has a, a dramatic impact on the, on the broader economy. Yeah. I just, man, there's just, there's such a lot of there. There's just, I, I was saying to you know, I've, I've said this on the show multiple times in the last month or so, and it, it does not at all point to the severity of the downturn. That's not what I'm trying to say. Um, I actually look at this yeah, situation. Yeah, that's up for debate, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and why I'm saying is I see – I mean, I think we're in a recession. I think that at the very least we will be in the in a recession for at least two to three quarters next year. Um, I, I think the severity of, of, of this recession that we're entering 
or that we're in is uh, is up to debate because I, I think that you could see the potential for real you know i don't see i don't see the type of potential and energy for a kind of a muddle through and then explode out the other end and everything's good um but when you look at the mix of what's going down in the world and i'm kind of throwing my idea out here and i and you can jump in and critique it and tell me if you agree or disagree but um i i see it as being um i think i i think if you were to put a gun in my head and say what what do you think I think it'll be bad. I don't think it'll be historically bad. I don't think we're about ready to fall off a cliff. I think it's going to be deeper and longer than most people think, but I don't think it necessarily has to be apocalyptic or anything like that. You know, I, I personally expect to see unemployment get somewhere between six to 8%. Eight might be a little high, but the other thing that, that I see chase is you've been it. The other thing I think people are really underplaying is I don't really even know what the impacts of these rate increases are going to be because you've never been at 0% so long. I think there are, the potential for things to blow up that we're not even thinking about right now, don't you, don't you think that that's a much big... I just think the tail risk is a lot fatter than most people think. And, I, and I'm not saying the tail risk for an apocalyptic downturn. I just don't understand the are we going to have a recession debate. And then... <laughs> I, I also see the table set to where I think if you're ignoring the potential for a really nasty outcome, I don't think that that's wise either. Am I being too pessimistic? Not, not to me. Um, and and the the biggest reason I I think I'm kind of as pessimistic as you is, is simply because I you usually the, the Fed's already cutting by now when you look at kind of all the leading indicators. Um, and not only are they not cutting, but they're going to do probably another full 1% at least in, in increases, and then they're going to sit on that. They're so afraid of being the 70s and, and being Arthur Burns again. And I, they they are also using an analog like, like the 1945 one we just talked about, but they're using the 70s analog where inflation went really high, and then they raised rates a bunch, and then they kind of let their foot off the brake and inflation came back. They're so afraid that's going to happen. That's all they talk about is yeah. we, we can't let that happen. So I'm afraid that a lot of stuff's going to start to break and things are going to start looking really bad. And it's going to be kind of obvious they should go back to cutting and they're just not. They're just going to kind of sit there and they're going to wait way too long and then it'll be way too late. Um, and that, that's when you kind of get it. You start running all the financial stability risks. And uh, yeah, so I, I – I'm, yeah, like you, I'm, I'm not saying we're, this is going to be the GFC 2.0 or anything like that, but but I, but I still, but I, a part of me thinks we all think that everyone's saying that, especially about housing. Like, oh well, it's not going to be that bad again. Well, everyone thinks that, and the rate increase was much more violent this time. The deterioration in home builder sentiment um, and uh, sales, all the all that data has fallen off much quicker. Um, inventories have risen much quicker than they did even in 08 when it comes to housing. So in some ways um, it's worse. Obviously the financing stuff is, is way more sound than, than going into 08. Um, so I, I agree that it's not going to be as bad as 08, but a lot of the, the data, when you look at the rate of change on it, it, it's actually worse than it was going into 08, which is, I don't think a lot of people understand that. Um, and then, yeah, like you have the stuff like the office space where, you know, that wasn't really a big deal in any, any of these past recessions. So, so that's kind of like a, a new wild card in the, in, in this oncoming recession. This the same as, you know, many other things. And I think some people may think work from home is like a little quick trend, but 
you know, just this week, Elon basically said, you know, come into the office or go away. And a lot of Twitter employees said, yeah, that's fine. We'll go away to the point where they're going to have possibly, you know, operational problems because they're not going to have enough people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of going to be the case everywhere. And, and even in, when you look at office real estate and you look at all these vacancy rates and they're really bad and they're getting worse, that's kind of scary. And then you stop to think, well, the, the amount of people trying to sublet space, that's gone through the, through the roof too. So that's sort of like a shadow inventory you don't even think about. Um, not not to take it back to, to office real estate every time we, <laughs> we talk about something, but um, it's just something else that comes to mind. But I, I you know, obviously, obviously the stock market is bouncing and I think that gives some people some hope and uh, the, the insanity and interest rates just going up 10, 20 basis points a day finally stopped. So I think a lot of people are feeling a little better about all this, but it's important to note that, you know, the long leading indicators, the short leading indicators, all of it is still just it's going straight down. Like none of, none of this stuff's bottomed. So <laughs> I, it, it tells you, you got to be really careful and, and earnings have come nowhere close to catching up to all that leading data that still has to happen. And that still will happen. I think, Earnings are being kept up by the fact that they're nominal and inflation is a big part of it. Um, we, we forget that. And they're being held up by the fact that, yes, like you know, households went into this with really great balance sheets, with a lot of excess savings. They paid their credit cards down during the pandemic, and now they get to, to let them rip again. But they are. Like, it's already up back to an all-time high again. So people have already kind of tapped credit, and they've tapped more than half of the, the excess savings they had. So... You know, all the easy buttons for the consumer are ba- have basically been pushed, and, and they're going to start making tough choices. Um, especially, I think, right after the holidays, the tough choices start. I, I think one of the most, and I want to get into another aspect of the behavioral aspect of of inflation because I had a bit of an epiphany that I wanted to run by you. But I, I the the I look at the market right now. I think, in a lot of ways, the stock market is more expensive here than it was at its peak. Meaning. When, and I don't, I don't mean to be hyperbolic on purpose or anything like that. I just look at what you were looking at as far as earnings a year ago, what you were looking at as far as market momentum a year ago. To think that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 7% this year in the biggest, fastest rate hikes in history, that the s and is down 17 18% in the biggest, fastest, and coming off the biggest margins and biggest profit, profit margin in history, Right, like well, average margin, profit margin on the S and P, I think, was about fifteen percent. Right, this cycle it reached what? It, what was it at the peak last year? I think it hit twenty six percent, which was a record. Um, I, I just I look at this market today, and I, I think it's crazy. I think it's more dangerous and more overheated in a lot of ways than it was a year ago. I, I just I don't. Um, like I said, the only analog I have in my career is the feeling I had in the summer of 2008, looking around going, either I am a complete idiot or this is like watching a guy, you know, it's like seeing a guy out on a runway walking toward a turboprop plane that's warming up its engines and he keeps getting closer and closer to the propeller and you're like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what I feel people are walking into. And, and then you sit there, everybody's like, man, it's been a tough year. Man, stocks have been hammered. You're sitting there going, the S&P's down 18% and trading at 22 times earnings, man. What on earth are you talking about? Like, this this isn't hard sledding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, not, it's not cheap yet. You could say it's less crazy, but it's definitely not cheap yet. Yeah, well, I think the, the crazy sectors of it have been hit. But, yeah. I mean, I, I, can, I can sit here right now and pull out 
probably 15 to 20 different retailers, retailers that are trading still at 30 times earnings plus, you know, where you're just like, this is insane. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I think some serious pain is coming and watching people be like, oh, well, you know, this could be a bottom. The worst is in. I'm just like, look, I look, if you believe that there's going to be some type of investor refusal to sell, like if you're, if, if you're going to make the argument to me that the worst is baked in and we found a bottom, you, you, it needs to be something other than economic. You need to, it needs to be behavioral. You need to tell me that people aren't going to be willing to part with stocks. You're going to need to tell me that the dollar surge drives in more international assets in the U.S. It, I, I, you just can't get there. I can you? I mean, on a fundamental level, like you said, the, you also said the earnings are holding up. Oh, I actually thought earnings X energy were a little worse than I thought they would be in the third quarter. I mean, they were down 5% year over year, right? Yeah. It's very, it's very true. I mean, they have started to melt, but when you still look kind of on a forward basis, uh, compared in my opinion compared to like where where all the the fundamentals are and where the where the leading indicators are it 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 has a long to me in my opinion it has a long way to go yeah um, and, and you'll you'll see it i mean it's starting to happen you know like in the, in the leads you look at like new orders um new new orders are really starting to to get hit you look at any any of the like the the business sentiment data say for the next where do you think your sales will be in six months that that kind of stuff is like really starting to get ugly um but I, I think for a lot of a lot of folks, I, I think too many people are still extrapolating where the consumer will be, as if they would still have two trillion dollars in excess savings, you know, uh, nine months from now. But they won't. Like that's all gone. And I, I don't think enough people are putting stuff like that in their models. So they're they're coming up with kind of crazy guesses on, on on earnings and margins both. Yeah, but I, I will say I will say on that like mar- margins, I I those have surprised surprised me already to the upside. So if you would have asked me nine months ago where they'd be now, I would have gotten it wrong. So that, I will say that. Well, don't you think though at this point they've been able to take advantage of like you and I talked about? They, if you look at the summer, there was it didn't matter what things were going to cost. People were going to go out and spend. So up until this point, I feel like because of those excess savings, yeah. I also think if you want to know what's holding up the margins, go look at debt levels. Right, like consumer debt right. levels. I, I think and there's it, your there's your margins right there. Uh, and some of the business surveys, there you're already seeing uh, pricing power, like where they're where they're an- answering questions about their pricing power. That's already starting to fall off a cliff. So like it it it's they're already feeling it. Like it hasn't really hit the economic data yet, but they're making it clear. Like oh, we we don't get to just keep raising prices the way we could, you know, six months ago. People are people are walking away. So yeah, the buoyancy of this market though is just no. But like I said, it, it's. That part, again, not saying it's going to be the great financial crisis, but you go back and look at it because I think I think going into the summer leading into 08, uh, that whole mess, I want to say the market was only I think it was kind of in a similar spot somewhere between down 15 to 20 on the year. Right. You got a lot of people talking about, oh, you know, I think we bottomed. The worst is priced in a lot of people saying, no, we got further to go. And I just remember sitting there looking around going, like I said, either I'm insane or these people are blind. Um, it, the the it, different seasonality, but it really is it really is shocking. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 7% on the year. It's almost back to its highs. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, had a, it's been on a rampage. Uh, what what do you I what do you make of that? I, I'm at a loss, Chase. Somebody asked me the other day. I sat there and I went, guys, I just think that this is. 
people going back to the well and believing a Fed story that doesn't exist, that's not going to happen, and I think they're going to get smashed. I don't really have an answer for it, though. It's, it's, it's remarkable to me. I mean, literally, it's like the worse the economic backdrop gets, the more it fuels at least the Dow. I mean, the NASDAQ's still down 25 on the year, 27, something like that. S&P's still down 18. But people are acting like that's the end of the world, and I'm sitting there going, guys, you, you haven't even retraced a year and a half yet. I mean, basically— yeah. The only thing I can really come up with that is is the Dow still having some of the kind of old school, uh, you know, like transit and and industrials that that uh, you know they are still making tons of money. So and they they haven't felt the the effect yet because they're kind of on the back end of all the lags. Um, because yeah, to me, like where the Nasdaq at is, is kind of roughly makes sense. Like I think it's it's about doing the right thing. Um, whereas yeah, the Dow is like. Uh, you guys realize what's hitting the Nasdaq's going to hit you too. It's just late later, <laughs> right, you know. Right. But that's kind of that, that kind of stuff makes makes for some opportunities where uh, the the way you know this 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 big you know policy rate kind of trickles through the economy in, in, in different ways. Like there are people that you know as soon as it hit in a break, as soon as the dam breaks, they get hit by it. So you know real estate, and then there are some stuff down at the end of the river that it, it takes a while to get there and. and I think a lot of that stuff is clustered in the Dow, so I, I think a lot of people want to want to look at the stock market as like this really great forward-looking thing. It's just sniff I was stuff just going to say that w- way before it happens, and I, I think that's largely a myth. I think for the most part, the stock market um, is is largely just reacting, and and a lot of it, you know, it's just passive inflows. Um, yeah, which is a reason I, I think you know for the rest of the year. With less humans trading, all the passive flows don't go away, and they buy. They don't sell. So I think you could have a melt up in, into, uh, you know, probably through the rest of the year because humans are going to go away, and even the humans that are trading probably are terrified of missing a move higher into the end of the year. So um, it, it all kind of makes sense for the rest of the year to be higher. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think the the stock market is very good at looking ahead. And but hey, that's, I, that creates opportunity. I've 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 always laughed at that. You know, and the reason I, well, the stock market is forward looking. Well, where was that forward looking in the summer of 2008? Where was that forward looking in January of 2020? Where was that forward looking the last quarter of last year where I will continue to say the biggest regret I have this year, and we stepped on it pretty hard. The biggest regret I have about this year is that I didn't step on it hard enough. I mean, the, 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 in my opinion, it is not forward looking. Maybe it was at one point. I think the market is an extrapolator, right? It's not a forward look. It's an extrapolator. So are most of the market participants, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're extrapolators. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like it, it's the, the market is just a compounder, bro, right? It's just it's just extrapolating out in the future. And when the path in front of it changes wildly, you watch it and the underlying behavior doesn't until they walk into, that goes back to my analogy, until they walk into the prop. And if you if you're out there telling yourself those soothing nighttime stories about well the market's forward looking so it's like have fun with that that's cost a lot of people a lot of money and is going to here in the near future the the thing I want to pivot though and talk to you about was I had a bit of an epiphany this week and I want to run it by you there are so many people including yours truly who over the last 15 years got exorbitantly frustrated with the reckless nature of fed policy and I believe it was reckless and one of the reasons that I thought it was reckless is because when we got to an environment where we actually needed to hike because of inflationary pressures popping up, um, I thought they would get us into a situation where if they hiked, it would cause too much underlying damage 
because they stayed at 0% so long. I am also of the belief that it's not just the level of interest rates, it's the time you spend there, right? If you spend three or four years at 0% interest rates, it doesn't get baked into the cake nearly as bad, right? There's people that aren't able to take advantage of it due to bonds coming due and things of that nature. Yields don't come down. Then you throw QE on top of it. You push them down even further. I, I don't I don't really think, um, you know, I, I think that it's not just how far they go down. It's not just if they get to zero, but how long they stay there. Now, I look back on it, though, and even though I disagreed with the policy and still do, I look at it with a little bit more of a jaundiced eye or maybe more of an even-handed way of looking at it now, which was to be fair to them. And this is the problem I've got with the Fed, right, is is that you were saying this earlier, they're backward looking. But to be fair to them, inflation, they couldn't even – inflation couldn't even maintain 2% and growth was averaging somewhere between like what, 1.8 to 2.3%, right? Mm -hmm. So – if all they're looking at is price stability and full employment, you can kind of see that where that would give them the cover in their academic minds to keep on to keep on pumping, right? But there is very much, and I think this gets overlooked, and the reason it gets overlooked is because it's really hard to calculate and get your hands around and probably impossible to some level. But a big part of inflation is behavior, right? Meaning you could have a government doing the most irresponsible fiscal things, And if consumers were scared to death and just keep stuffing the money under the mattress, you're not going to get inflation, right? Right. There's a behavioral aspect. And I started looking at this and thinking to myself, you know, I'm wondering if the Fed, because you've got to, you know, really what they're trying to do with interest rates is they're trying to alter investor behavior, correct? And, And I started thinking about it and going, I don't think that they can get inflation under control until the market goes significantly lower. They've got to beat these animal spirits out of investors and out of people in general. And I think all you need to know for proof is things like FTX. Do you know that their stablecoin, FTX is gone, right? Their stablecoin is still sporting a $380 million market cap. It was up 50% the other day, right? I, I, you look at Grinder. Grinder came out and IPO'd in a SPAC deal. It was up 300% today alone, right? These animal spirits are not beaten down. And as a matter of fact, the vast majority of investment participants, whether you're listening to them on TV or talking to them out there, this is a buying opportunity. And I started realizing, you know, I beat up the Fed for driving up asset prices for 15 years. Obviously, they're not going to come out and say this. But I don't think they can break the back on inflation unless the market goes because they've got to change investor behavior. A change in investor behavior will be stopping speculation and a return to more conservative, fundamental-based investments. If that happens, this market's got to go a lot lower, bottom line, at least in my opinion. What do you have to say about that? So here we have a little bit of a a differing view, which is good. So I think this was very, very important uh, when they were playing catch up. I think, I think they had to really, you know, sit on asset prices and make sure they didn't, didn't have any life whenever they were trying to catch up on, on policy because they were so behind the curve. You know, they, they, they're referring to the rate hikes as front loading. Well, that's, that's like a, that makes it sound like you're on the ball. In reality, you're playing catch up and you're way behind and it was irresponsible. Um, So during that period, 
we, when we weren't even, you know, at the neutral rate yet, the call that two and a half percent. Um, it, it made sense to me. Like you can't even let stocks, you know, breathe. But now I don't really think that's the case. I think, I think you've already baked in inflation going back at least, uh, I would say under four next year, at least, um, probably have baked in it going all the way back under, under three in my, in my opinion. I, I know most people wouldn't agree with that, but that's fine. Um, and, and in that light, I think because you've sort of already baked it in, I, I think really no matter what stocks do, we're going back under four next year and probably under three. Um, now that's not to say that it, it's not still important. I, I, I do think still think it's important. Like if the NASDAQ's at all time highs in, in, in Q1, even though the economy's melting, like that's not great for the Fed at all. Um, but I think uh, it became clear that, and they made it clear, like, hey, if I, we're watching financial conditions, and and all that really is for anyone listening, it doesn't, you know, know what that. It, it's just more or less just the price of stocks, bonds, and and the dollar, more or less. Um, so rates high, stocks low, dollar high, like that means financial conditions are really tight. And that's what they wanted. That's what they needed. They've loosened up obviously a little bit here in the last uh, like two, three weeks, but I, I think they can loosen at this point and we still get inflation absolutely under control. Um, but at, especially, you know, once the labor market breaks, because then all bets are off. Um, but, you know, between now and then, I think they have to keep an eye on it. And I think they have to, don't let it get too out of hand, but I, I don't think they have to, to keep it down the way they had to say uh, in the first three quarters of this year. Like it was just, it was so important that all that stuff kept going down um, and the dollar was moving higher the first three quarters. Now I think they can kind of let that stuff go a little bit um, without, without it like ruining what they're going to do. But, but then again, you know, Hey, I, I believe they've already over tightened and they're going to over tighten dramatically. So it's easy for me to sit here and say like that they can let financial conditions loosen up a little bit. Yeah, I just um, I, I keep going back to. I think they agree with you though. I, if you go back and watch Powell's last press conference, uh, whenever someone told him it, this guy was wrong, but he said the stock market's up, you know, X percent. What do you think about that? And if you go back and watch that, Powell literally looked angry. Like he looked miffed yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, so Bullard, it, it kind of Bullard it, did it, too. It, it Bullard, Bullard looked really frustrated about it too. He even rolled his eyes. I, I think I. <laughs> Again, I, this is pure speculation on my part. I think that the stock market buoyancy is irritating them. Oh, I, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, I just think they're kind of looking around going, you guys don't get it, do you? And, you know... But if they give that time, it, it will break just like everything else will. Yeah, yeah. Because well, like, you, like you mentioned, the time spent at those rates matters just as much as, as where they're at. It, it, how did we get here, Chase? What, what, if, if the picture is so clear, and obviously there is the potential that I'm wrong, um, I, I don't really – I mean maybe I'm wrong regarding severity, but can, I just don't even think that it's possible to ramp rates that high that fast after being at zero for so long. I, I just don't even think it's – again – we, who knows the depth and the duration of it? I think it's going to be longer and worse than people think. I don't think we're on the, like I said, I don't think we're on the edge of a catastrophe, but um, I, here, here's the most confounding thing that I want to ask you that, that I'm, when I listen to some of these bullish arguments, first of all, they aren't any arguments. They don't point to anything factual. They don't point to any earnings. I, 
Um, it's just, oh, I think this has happened. And I went, okay. Um, I've really sat down, and I know you and I have had these conversations offline. And, and I know that you'll agree with this statement of, of we spend far more time trying to figure out where we're wrong than trying to justify where, why we believe we're right. Yeah. You know, just I've learned that through pain. Um, when I sit down and try to come up with a bullish scenario that supports, forget markets going up from here, just supports markets at these levels, I just can't get there. I cannot get there at all unless somehow earnings don't matter. I, I just, I can't, I, I can't get there. Can you, and should I be able to get there? It is, I mean, you've never seen rate hikes like this, but anytime we've looked in the past to anything similar, it was not constructive to asset prices, correct? So what, what, where could we be wrong? Um, I, I would say the the biggest thing would be if I'm wrong, that the fed is going to like stay too tight for too long. And so if they take this like militant hawkishness and they just kind of on a dime, just flip, that would like really surprise me. Um, obviously, but, but that would do it. I, I think if, if they reversed course fast enough, yeah, be, because you're, because we're going to go into a recession with, um, balance sheets being better than we normally go into a recession with. Um, if the fed kind of un- unwound and like, Oh, sorry, we screwed up. Like, you know, we're cutting rates back to, to say two, um, next year. Then I think that'll really, you know, maybe the, the war in Ukraine ends and some of the commodity pressures come off, like things like that. If, if that kind of stuff happens, then there, there is a lot of, uh, runway for, for the economy and the markets to kind of take back off. But I, obviously I, I, find that scenario to be uh, a low probability scenario right now. But I think, you know, if you want to try to paint a picture of what it w- would look like it, to me, that's, it would look something like that. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, the other thing I think is that you'd have to even look at what they cut. Now, if they cut, I mean, the markets would rip to the upside. That's the other thing that I think that the fed is probably aware of. If they back down or pivot, you, I, I mean, these, the, the it, as incredible as it is to guys like you and I are watching the fundamentals there are so many bulls out there that are just waiting to rampage. They just believe that we've got this beautiful rip higher coming and just load up baby. Cause the lows are in and it's coming. I think if they capitulated that inflation would fly right back up. Maybe a few areas where the supply chain kinks have been worked out. Wouldn't, but I mean, I think the insanity would start, start fresh. I mean, I think we'd, I think we'd just get, I, I think that they'd be right back to probably having to hike. Uh, so I, several I, months later there, I don't, I think, and I think what you're saying is something that is kind of a fresh in a lot of people's mind and that we, we think stocks higher inflation higher. And I just don't, or, or, you know, financial conditions being loose mean stocks higher inflation higher. And I don't think that's the case. If you look, if you go back and look at the 2010s, I mean, the market basically went straight up for the whole decade and inflation was low. I don't think inflation cares more really what, how the stock, what the stock market's doing. Um, now, like I say, you think back to like Q1, Q2, Q3, like it was just such an important transmission mechanism for the Fed to make sure that the wealth effect was going in reverse to like change people's feelings about spending. Um, but I think you could get into a situation where the economy is doing poorly and stocks go up for no other reason than it's yay Fed. Um, and then, but, it, but, but where inflation doesn't bounce back. I think everyone's going to expect that. I think 
as soon as the Fed changes policy, right, the, the market will go ripping higher. And a lot of people are going to be like, oh, well, that means the economies can go ripping higher too, and inflation will go ripping higher. And I think, I think the last two there, the economy and inflation, may not rip higher. I think, and I think, and I think it may be a situation where the the, the stock market goes flying higher after the Fed says, hey, we're going to we're going to chill out, and then, but then about three months later, everyone's kind of looking around, going like, wait a second, like nothing else is doing well. Like, where's our earnings at? You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, at some point, yeah, at some point, the reality of the situation has to come to the fore, which is going to be the earnings. And that's I, I, that's another one that blows me away. When you look at some of the stalwarts, the generals of this move, and some of the earning report, earnings reports they've put up, and the buoyancy that people, I, it just, if, I mean, if Meta and Microsoft and Google are getting hit on earnings, no one's safe, man. That's the other thing yeah. that just blows my mind is you're sitting there going, guys. Do you realize what's coming down the pipe here, right? They're like, well, markets aren't cheap. And I'm like, these markets are pretty cheap, 22 times earnings. He's like, oh, my gosh, give it two quarters, bro. The the other one I think is going to be very interesting is to see where we're at at the end of the fourth quarter, meaning I think one of the underlying deals here is when you look at the anomalous surge, and there were a lot of things that played into it. You may be able to speak better better to it than I can, but – there were record earnings last fourth quarter, correct? Right, we, we, most profitable quarter in the history of the S and P five hundred in terms of you know the nominal number, right? The highest number right. of earnings ever. Um, and there were so many anomalous things that played into that that will not play out that last year or this year. There are so many things this year that are are literally one hundred and eighty degrees different than what created that anomalous deal. I think you're looking at a massive miss year over year on earnings in fourth quarter. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I I think that's very possible. Obviously, there it, it's going to be there'll be pockets that are still doing fine, right. and they're going to be but there, and there'll be pockets that are just apocalyptically bad. So I, I there'll be a mix, but yeah, I think I think broadly speaking for the whole market, yeah, I, I could imagine it being pretty weak. Yeah, it's it's it it looks it looks uh, it looks nasty to say the least. Um, okay, so switching a little bit, any other now I've driven the agenda so far. What else do you see happening out there that you don't think is getting enough attention? Um, and and what have you been focused on recently? Also, it seems as though uh, the energy crisis is over. Uh, we're back to normal in Germany. I, I was mentioning you the other day. I looked at the German stock market, the DAX. It's almost back to its high. Um, that was a bit confounding. Now, to be fair, the FTSE is as well. Now, to be fair... The FTSE has had a bad run for a very long time, so and it's extraordinarily cheap. So that's a little bit different. I looked at the DAX though, and I was a, I was a little bit caught off guard. The DAX has performed significantly better than almost any other European market I was looking at. And looking at the duress that the German economy—I mean, you've got businesses folding up left and right. I think I, the pressure has eased a little bit recently. But um, what in the world is driving the optimism? Again, I realize the euro dropping against the dollar uh, is, is, you know, some bulls will point to that and say, oh, that's all great. But the global concern, <laughs> I, I don't think a little bit of ease on the, on the, 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 well, I don't think a little bit of an ease on the euro is really going to help them too much. Um, where, where, how do you explain that move in German stocks? What, what are, what, what are investors looking at there? 
Yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of different things that explain this, especially in Germany. So their kind of power, their ability to uh, absorb the shock because of of what their fiscal situation is, is a lot different than you know places like the UK. Um, so they essentially have have papered over and kept whole a lot of their uh, industry and, and their consumers. So the economy kind of gets to sit there and and, and just ignore it all because. You know, they're throwing 200 billion at energy subsidies, things like that. Um, but if you kind of go back to where we were late summer, um, when natural gas is down about 70% uh, in Europe. So if you kind of model out what happens to their trade deficit with, <laughs> with you know, natural gas at 340 euros versus now being at 112 euros, like that is a, that is a giant, giant difference for their, for their, their trade account uh, for, you know, some some businesses had to like just turn the off switch. If if you if you're building if you're making fertilizer, uh, natural gas is that expensive. There's no point in even having a factory. So they turn they literally turn the lights out. Well now they're you know most almost all of them are back up and running. Uh, and the same for things like aluminum smelters, uh, you know, all the other chemical uh, products they make in, in Germany, things like that. Uh, all that stuff is now kind of back online because they can afford to be back online. Uh, in, in Europe, you have because right right now in the U.S. the f- fiscal is actually a drag. That's actually falling significantly year over year. the The currency is a drag because it's it's moved so much higher. But in in Europe, they're having fiscal stimulus because theirs was kind of backloaded instead of all at once. Um, not that's from like a EU standpoint. Not to mention in the individual countries, a lot of them are doing fiscal stimulus. Um, the, the, yeah, I mean, the trade situation went from just ugly trade deficit to getting a lot better. Uh, their currency has fallen instead of, uh, of going higher. So like they, they just kind of have a, a lot, their interest rates are, are lower than ours still. I, I just think you were starting to price in, uh, an apocalypse in, in Europe and a, that kind of worst case scenario has gotten turned down a few notches and that, you know, whenever you go from, from absolute like destitution and everything is the worst to hey things are still really bad but man that we really dodged a bullet there you, you can have significant jumps in, in asset prices and yeah, I, I but, that's what, but, what's but, happening there okay but ripping back to your all-time high well i mean they're not at their all-time highs though to be fair what do you mean i, mean, I, they're, I they're understand close. what you're saying like they have but you, you think about all the people globally that probably went short germany six months ago that had to cover that, that created a lot of buying that that you know had had to unwind. So it, will, it, will it stay this high? Maybe not. Yeah, it, German German stocks are about twelve percent off the high. So I to just, me, that I, that actually probably makes sense. You think that's you think that's all that they deserve to be? I, I how how does that well, make sense? It, it, well, for so I think you're kind of anchoring to the U.S. where everything was so dramatically overvalued. Yeah, that wasn't really true. the case in Europe. Europe European stock markets have more or less gone sideways for twenty years. Instead of straight up for twenty years, so so when you, I think when you back out and look at the valuations, um, I mean, there's a lot of single PE stuff in, in Europe. Um, Germany's a little bit different, obviously, than than a lot of the rest of Europe. So to your point, like, you know, maybe Germany is a little a little, a little too aggressive here, but um, but I think European I mean, uh, as the, a continent I mean, though is, is so it was so cheap that it almost didn't matter since. Hold on. I won't say that for the DAX because the DAX has gone up. The, the bo- yeah, the bottom in the GFC, the DAX has increased more than the S&P. 
no, not no, no. That's from the bottom. Never mind. But you you bottomed on the on the DAX. Say, wow, yeah. <laughs> you bottomed on the DAX at forty eight hundred. You're currently at fourteen five fourteen thousand five hundred. So you've tripled. The DAX is currently triple from where it was at the bottom. The previous top in 07 was 78. So you're double the previous top in 07. It's, I mean, it, it well, look. Well, it, one it, thing I will add is it, it, you think about Germany, like they, they make real stuff. They don't, they don't make. That's true. Uh, you know, they don't make apps to make your face look like a, a, do- a puppy so you can send it to your buddies. Like it, it you know, they're making chemicals and cars and, and, and planes and, you know, they're making real stuff. So I, I, it's a little different in that, in that standpoint. I'm not saying I'm a buyer of the DAX here. I don't right, want to go right. out and buy German stocks, but I, I don't think it's it's crazy. I know. I just I it's just an exasperation I have in whole. I just look at I look at equity markets right now and I'm just like it looks like equity markets are pricing like it it almost looks like the nominal tax rate's been bumped up by five percent. Like right, like if 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 you looked at the action on the year and looked where indexes were trading, you're like, oh, stocks are down, but you know we knocked up the uh, corporate tax rate by five percent. That's just kind of stocks pricing that in. I where I look at this and I'm just like, good lord, when I when you look at what's coming down the pipe at these things, like we're talking about the commercial real estate side, I just look at all this and I'm like, oh my god. These people really think they're going to run this thing back to all-time highs. I'm looking at it right now just going, this is insane. I'm just – if you can't tell, this is as much therapy for me as it is information for the audience because it's just a head-scratcher, man. As a value guy, as a fundamental investor, looking at valuations and looking what the market is facing, I I just can't square it. I mean on the economy, like you said, the job losses that are coming – it it's it's really remarkable. Then I also sit there and I think to myself, you know, that frustration that I felt in the summer of 2008, one of that, a big part of that was just that belief that real estate can't go down and that the Fed's got our back and that this is all solid. Um, when you extrapolate that out and you're looking back at the longest bull market in U.S. history, the biggest bull market in U.S. history, um, it takes a while to change that behavior, right? I mean, it, it takes a while for people to get out of that mode and believe that they can actually lose money. And when I right. look at when, and when I look at the, the willingness for these people to jump back into these crypto spaces, to bid up the FTT, and again, I'm just talking, the crypto space is not a big part of the economy at all, so I'm not hanging it on that, but I'm using it as an it's investor some, sentiment yeah. gauge. They've not gotten the message. Whatever message the Fed's trying to convey, the, the market has not gotten it. Would you agree with that? I agree. I, I do agree. And, and you probably remember my April monthly was, was titled the Fed call. Cause the point I was trying to make is like, the, not only is there not a Fed put anymore, but it's a Fed call. Like they want stocks down. They want all asset prices down and they're, and they're going to, they will see to it that it happens. Like we, everyone got so used to like, if something bad happens, they, they come and they come and fix it. Well, not only, not only is that not true anymore, but they, their incentive is, is, is actually reversed. And, and I think that's that's where people are going to get themselves in trouble is whenever they do, you know, reverse their policy. It, does that necessarily mean that we go back to zero and, and we're doing tons of Q, QE again? Or like, what what if what if one percent is the is the new zero? I that may sound small to people, but that is that actually has immense consequences if one is the new zero and and if you know five is the is the new you know terminal rate the new ceiling. That that alone is is 
is a really big deal to to whenever you're we have you know seven hundred trillion dollars in, in in, in debt or whatever total debt is or, or percentage GDP anyway, whenever you're that levered, rates being 100 basis points higher than they were alone is a big deal. So yeah, uh, that that like that hasn't still gotten priced. And everyone's so focused on the terminal rate on the on the higher end. To me, what what may matter more is well, what's the, is there a new floor above zero? Because that no, I don't think anyone's ready for the new floor to be one or two percent, and that that's not impossible. No, and that's another thing that is it, that is amazing to me. Getting my wonkish hat out and being just a finance nerd. When you look at when you look at valuations on the overall market through the last fifteen years, the S and P had some surges. But to be fair um, and accurate, if you want to really go back and look at it, the earnings multiple and look, PE ratio is not the king of all. I don't want any emails. PE ratio. I understand that, but we got to use the metrics we've got. And the PE ratio, I think, is actually very good as kind of an identifying way marker, right? Like in terms of, I, I do not think it is a good complete way to value a company. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying when you assign it to the market as a whole, I think it's a good marker to kind of look at things in context. And then you can even break it down and look at individual companies. When I look at real stuff and I'm not talking about the stuff that got up to 50 times revenue with negative cash flow and stuff like that. I'm talking about real companies. Um, I'm looking at the market and I'm looking at a lot of the leading stocks in the market trading at around the same levels they have averaged over the last 15 years. S&P kind of traded in that 18 to 21 range. You know, when it got really bulled up, you'd peak up up the 21 times, 22 times earnings, maybe a little bump in the road. You got down to 18. A lot of the big tech leaders were trading right or somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 25 with the exception of Amazon. But then you got to normalize for Amazon's investments and things like that. I'm looking at a Fed funds rate sitting where are we at now? Four and a quarter? Are we at four and a quarter four. now? Four? Okay, Fed funds rate's gone from zero to four, and those valuations, it's you're you're still knocking around right around those those valuation averages the last fifteen it's years. Not, it's not check yet. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Mathematically it doesn't work, right? If the if you can make four and a half percent owning a US government bond, the prices of stocks have to come down. Right, just on a yeah, on a on everything a else has to has a lot more to prove to you whenever you can get four and a half for nothing. Yeah, I it's just it is absolutely staggering. Me. Okay, so I've kept you here for a long time. Let's pivot really quick in the last five to ten minutes here. What else is happening out there that you think is of note that you think is really interesting? Whether it be good, whether it be bad, whether it be indifferent, what what should we be what should we be paying attention to or discussing that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I, th- I think. Uh, one of the big things, even though I see, you know, the uh, uh, the economy being really bad coming up, I, I think oil is getting a little oversold right now. I think, yeah. I think oil is a pretty good opportunity where we're at. Um, and the other thing is, is, and this one I've been early on. You, you know better than than really any of my clients that I've been too early on on metals. But I, I think, I think gold and silver um, are starting to starting to come to life a little bit. I don't, I don't think this is like, you know, I don't think the starting gun is really gone off yet but I, I think they're getting very close to uh finding a, a, a very durable bottom and starting to head higher um those are a couple areas that that kind of have my attention uh lately um i've been i've been in biotech for a while still still like it it's still it's still performing pretty well um on, on a relative basis but 
those are those are a few things that kind of have my attention. Another thing is is China. I mean, let me talk about that for a second because everyone's I, I was all fired up because they're because they're oh they're you know COVID zero they're gonna get rid of it, uh, and they very well may um, completely get rid of it. I, I don't really think that's the way it's gonna work, but let's say they do. I, I still don't care. Like you still you still have a, a, an economy with massive massive structural problems, the overbuilding of real estate, the real estate bubble bursting. That alone is going to, you know, really limit growth there. You, you were talking about animal spirits and how the Fed needs to get animal spirits down. Uh, any measure of animal spirits in China from investors uh, is it's just it's really really bad. Um, you have one just main avenue for investment in the country, and, and that's real estate. And they just, I mean, they just took a bat, a baseball bat, to it. Um, and whenever you do that, you really spook. Uh, a capital so you have that situation where people are just putting their money under a mattress and um so i think people are going to get too excited about china um whether that be the their their input to the global economy or just you know wanting to go buy chinese assets i i think i think a word of caution is definitely warranted for getting too excited about them you know the absence of shutdowns is, isn't isn't in itself bullish like sure right. like for that you know for that three months like let's you know, let things kind of reprice because we we were pricing it for for absolute you know doom. Like that that's fair, but three months after they they end COVID zero, what's re- is is China like a, a good economy? No, it's still really bad. So I, and getting worse. I think that's a situation where people are, are kind of kind of missing the bigger picture. Wait, what what do you make of them just not releasing their economic data? Uh, I mean. I'm, I'm just not classic really China. Particularly surprised, yeah. yeah. It, it's really bad data. That I mean, and they're owning to some of the like, hey, we're like the GDP, like things not going to happen anymore. And um, so I mean, it's not like they're not owning up to some of that. But yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's really bad. And you know, you you had some kind of liberal types uh, still left in the economy. By, by that I mean, you know, pro market type, and they're all gone. So now that he has nothing but his people. Um, in the, in the Politburo and in the standing committee and everything like it from this point forward, you, you have nothing but G lackeys and uh, none of those people care about, you know, market economy and, and care about the, the data doing well and, 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 you know, every, all this stuff looking good. At least not, at least not the way they used to guys like uh, Lee K King. He would, he would, he was very much known for trying to, to, calm the fears of Western investors in China and everything. Cause he knew how much the, the capital meant to China and, and he's gone now. And I think it, they, they may have to have a lot of pain before they realize how much they need that capital. Yeah. I, uh, I keep getting the feeling. Um, and you know, as I've said before on this show, many times China's a black box. I don't have any insight to it. I, yeah. I just, I look at they this, really yeah, I look at this scenario. I can't I have no clue when on the timing. I just don't think we're going to get through the next cycle or this down cycle without them devaluing the currency. Do do you think that they can avoid that? Do you think I'm being over bearish on them? I just I just don't maybe you can paint a different picture looking at that property situation in their country. I just don't think they can maintain the peg. I I I think they're going to have to adjust it down. I don't know what percentage, maybe 15 to do it. Maybe it's more like 25 to 30. I just don't think they can maintain that peg. Where do you think we're at or are on that, on that whole situation? Well, I mean, 
it, it at one point this year had, had fallen about 16%. So like that kind of, in, in, a, in a way kind of already happened. Um, but I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, again, going back to some of the, the liberal people having been shown the exit, I, I think a lot of them are the ones that cared deeply about uh, the, that currency strength. So it's possible that those people being gone leads to a new regime where uh, having the currency, you know, adjust to allow for, you know, kind of a release valve for some of these pressures is possible. But at the same time, um, this may allow China to actually try to transition their economy to a more consumer centric economy where they actually let, you know, regular people um, get some money for savings and, and actually invest and kind of grow that way instead of just trying to make stuff and export it to the world. And in that scenario, you, you kind of really want a, a strong currency to, to give all your consumers that, you know, more, more power that way. Um, so may, maybe the, you know, the incentives are, are changing to where they, they still want to keep a, a at least a, a stable currency. Um, but it, I, I'm not sure on the currency side. I, do, I would not do, be surprised either way. Okay, how do they hold that property bubble together without it devaluing? That, I, I guess that's my main thing. I mean, maybe they can function. I just can, – can they hold – I mean, this property situation is preposterous, right? The real estate state situation in China is preposterous. How do they keep that – how do they keep that bubble inflated? They don't. I mean, and they – now, the, I think the only thing they can do is really kind of freeze it. Um just just don't really let prices go down much uh don't let people build much so that you don't have you know even more supply problems um but it, even in that scenario that's kind of like a shark you know that doesn't sw- that stops swimming like it it their economy is so real estate centric that they have to get the rest of the economy to kind of take the baton from from real estate in order to make this make sense and I, it's very difficult for me to see how they do that and I, obviously they've tried to go up the value chain with things like semiconductors but then it turns out you know it they need the western supply chains to even make that work essentially and and we're actively going after that at the moment so you, what you will see them do is get get a lot closer with the middle east and that allows them to uh sell more stuff to the middle east and in open up kind of some new markets for them. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And they, they build more weapons now than they used to, and they can sell a lot of those. So there's some things like that they can do to kind of paper over some of the giant holes they're going to get left um, from real estate. But in general, I, I think they don't want to kind of reinflate that bubble uh, because they know how damaging it'll be long-term, but you can't, you can't really let it all be priced out to what it should be priced because you don't really have an economy left if you do that. So I, right. I think the best bet is they kind of just freeze it and and try to don't let it get too bad, but don't you know don't let it go up either. And but that that means growth is now more like two percent than than ten percent. And I I think they might just be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. I you're gonna if, have to be probably. I mean, if that ends up being their bottom. Uh, I I would call that. No, I, mean, I mean, like trend growth, not. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. I just I I think that that would be a good outcome, uh, at least as far as they're concerned. I, I think it's basically going to be they're going to be they're going to do the same thing that, that Japan did before them and and the Soviet Union did before them. They they reached the end of this this development model where all the easy stuff was done, where you you did all the urbanize urbanization, you did all of the 
build out of everything you could ever need. And then you got to the end of that and you're okay, well now what? And there's not much of a now what unless you do a bunch of really high end manufacturing and, and a lot of kind of, you know, at, at this point it's, it's, you need high end services. You need a lot of, uh, techno technology, um, you know, IP, things like that, that, that starts at, if you don't, if you don't have that stuff driving you anymore, after your wages got went up and your working class population starts to fall dramatically, then you have a problem. And that's just kind of where they're at. All right, pal. Well, as always, uh, great to have you on. I've soaked up enough of your time. For those of you out there that want to follow Chase, you can get him, follow him on, on Twitter at, at Pinecone Macro. Uh, that's, that's the right that's, tag, that's right? right? Yeah, there we go. I'm getting good at that one. And then also what, hit him with the website, Chase. Yeah, PineconeMacro.com, another I, easy one. Yeah, I figured it was that. Um, and then the first tier, and this is how you and I got started. I just bought your first tier, the the, the uh, basic newsletter. Isn't that still going for like thirty bucks a month? Yep, thirty three. It's I, we inflation. launched this thing in, in twenty eighteen and it hasn't moved. So inflation adjusted is basically free now. Oh wow! Oh, inflation. It, look at that, folks. You're getting yeah. you're getting it for free. We haven't raised prices through the, through all of this. When We're going we to next year probably. When when we hedonically adjust the price of the membership, it is now free. So uh, you're going to want to take advantage of that. I thought you'd get a little more kick out of that hedonically adjusted term <laughs> that I slid in there. It was good. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, I can we, tell. I will say, like, now is a good time to get in because we're going to grandfather people in when we do raise prices. But we we plan to probably uh, middle middle of next year, something like that. When I'm when I'm freed up to do finance full time, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well. We're going to jack that thing through the roof, pal, uh, because you're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to put, we're going to build the bulwark premium into that thing. We got to start, we got to start making some real money on that sucker. Uh, anyway. All right, pal. Well, thank you so much for coming on and you guys, thank you for joining us. And uh, as always, we will be back next week. Got another good interview lined up. I don't know if it'll be as good as our main man, Chase Taylor, but we'll do our best for you. Anyway, uh, as always, log on, subscribe to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.